Welcome, and thank you for joining Brooker's new podcast series, OMG Omics. I'm your host, Kate Stumpo. I work at Brooker. I've been with Brooker for about 18 months, and I've gone from application scientist up to a market manager. So there's a lot of variety in what I've seen so far in my time at Brooker. I hope that I can bring to you the excitement that I feel with science every day. I hope that I can bring to you the OMG moments that will keep you coming back and listening for more as we bring various guests in this year. What we want to do is to make science work for you. On our first episode of OMG Omics, I'm very happy to bring to you Rowan Thacker, the president of Life Science Mass Spectrometry at Brooker. What you're going to hear today is about how to be disruptive in science, how it works well, and how it can help to facilitate the OMG moments that you'll have throughout your career. He's going to show you how science can work for you. We're going to touch on a variety of topics that are important for Brooker and how we're making gains in the life science mass spectrometry market. Thank you so much, Rohan, for being here as our first guest to kick off our OMG Omics podcast series. My pleasure. So Rohan, you've been with Brooker in a variety of different roles. You started in R&D, you moved up to president of the division as your current role. In looking back at your time here with Brooker, when did you start to direct and push for Brooker to be truly competitive in the life science market instead of just magnet-based mass spectrometry solutions? Yeah, I would have to give credit to Jurgen Schrager, who uh, basically in 2016 told me because we had worked in the past together to come to Bremen and said, look, we have this technology sitting in our R&D area, and can this be made to work in proteomics? And that was the Thames technology. So the question was how best to kind of utilize what we had compared to the incumbent in the market. So that's how it all started, is did we have the product that would enable us to compete in in the market? That was Tim's. Tell me how you felt by being the champion of a disruptive product in a very diverse market. And how does it feel to bring something like that into this space and see it succeed at the level that it has? Yeah, that's a very good question because one of the aspects that was missing in proteomics especially was sample throughput. So in the past, I mean, I've been in proteomics for almost, I would say, 25, 30 30 years, and everything was slow. So most runs took two hours. And then you had additionally an hour of data processing, if you're lucky. So if you compare that to genomics, which could do, you know, 100,000 samples a day, proteomics at the time was doing about 10 samples a day. And with what the Tim staff allowed us to do was to immediately take a two-hour runtime. And because of passive, we had duty cycle advantages that allowed us to get the same information in 20 minutes. So this really changed the way people looked at proteomics, and it started to bring meaningful statistics to the data, just like the genomics you know, revolution. 
And once we knew we had the speed where we could crank through many samples a day, the other aspect was taking all these uh, data files and converting that into actionable knowledge, right? So we needed software. And that's where we uh, went after John Yates and Robin Park's company called IP2. And that's what became Pacer and Run and Done. So for the first time, we not only had innovation on the hardware, but we also could give our users uh, information right after the file was closed. So these two things, I think, put together the rapid increase in the number of samples per, that could be analyzed per day and the data that could be analyzed as soon as the run was over were real, I would say, breakthrough innovations in a field that was stagnant for about 15 years. So that brings us up to the last few years. But if we look at 2022 specifically, and we think about plasma proteomics, kind of a subset of this, and where we're starting to direct a lot of our attention, what do you think some of the the breakthroughs could be and what role can Brooker continue to play in that in this year or what has come up in the last year or two? You know, we are in a unique position, right? Because Brooker also has a very strong MALDI imaging program. So we know... We are leading in that space in terms of what proteins we can now identify in tissue through our partnership with Ambergen and the MALDI pipeline labels. So most of the diseases that we see in oncology start in tissue. Now, the whole attraction to plasma proteomics is the leakage products from these tumors. And because we have this uh, position of strength in our MALDI imaging program, Now, we have a very strong product on the plasma proteomics side with another acquisition we made, which was preomics, that allows us to process, uh, to uh, prepare the samples for analyses. And we got a product that lets you go through, you know, samples quickly. So we have five-minute runs, for example, in some applications in plasma proteomics, looking at, you know, two, three hundred top proteins. And why is that important? Because when you're doing plasma proteomics, it's usually in a uh, kind of research, but a hospital-type clinic setup. So you want to have data quickly processed and analyzed. You you can't wait weeks for data to be turned around. So the speed of Passive and Tim's technology plus our PACER package allows us to to go through many samples a day and derive this information where it can be used to make a decision or at least advise our users as a secondary test, of course, because it's a RUO product that you know it can have impact. And we have some very good examples with uh, Dr. Roman Fisher at Oxford, you know, Matthias Mann and Martins Reed and Copenhagen, Ellen Van Gool up at the Radboud. Uh, people like that when are using our systems in that in that context. You mentioned a lot of people who have really been pioneers in this field and and in your position, how often do you get to talk to people who are are these trailblazers and who are really at that bleeding edge? And how does it feel to be a part of interacting with science at that level? Yeah, that's always been a main focus, right? To be successful, we've got to listen to our early adopters because they will tell us which direction to take the technology because we're not experts in the biology. So we know we have a piece of technology that could help. Now the question becomes, 
what's the biological relevance of the technology we're trying to uh, trying to place. So they play a pivotal role in helping us design the instruments and the capabilities to let them do their work. Because in the end, our tools need to provide assistance to our early adopters and these KOLs who are making a meaningful difference in you know, solving these difficult problems in, uh, in oncology and biology. Thank you for that answer. That was that was nice. Um, if I kind of stay on that same theme, did, have you had any OMG moments learning about cancer biology, learning about the applications that are possible with Brooker's technology since you trained as a more classical scientist? What, what has popped up to you that just makes you go, wow, I am so amazed that we impact this field? Yeah, um, I have the perfect actually answer for that. So, you know, Roman Fisher, who uh, who is you know a very uh, excellent scientist and a good friend, sent me this image of 96 well plates from the floor all the way to the top of the of the Timstoff uh, flight tube, and he sent me this picture and said, "Look, Ron, this is the impact your product has made in our daily life," and I think you know that image. You know, an image is worth a thousand words, they say, right? It's perfect because for the first time, he could cut through five, 6,000 samples without cleaning his mass spectrometer. And that to me was really an oh, oh my God moment because it's like, wow, you know, we, we achieved something that was difficult is, you know, designing a robust mass spectrometer where one of our users is happy to send us such an image. Rowan, you've dropped the, the, the concept of spatial omics and the spatial component several times now. So I'd like to go back to that. You know, this is an evolutionary field for proteomics as well to bring that spatial component in. Can you tell us your thoughts on the rapid growth and success of spatial proteomics and omics in general at Brooker? Absolutely. Well, that comes again from listening to one of our key KOLs, which is Matthias Mann, right? So they're looking at tumor biology. They're looking at uh, what drives metastasis in tumors. And their approach is to evaluate the tumors using deep visual techniques and then using a laser capture microdissection technique to carve out specific areas within the tumor cells and turns out they can go down to maybe a few cells, if not a single cell, and individually take a look at the proteins within the cells within the tumor microenvironment. Right. So for a long time we we had a debate internally whether to go label free or with labels using our moldy imaging techniques. And because of our partnership, which was driven by uh, Mike Easterling and Ambergen, that basically now gives us just a very powerful technique. The only question now becomes sensitivity, whether we can follow the proteins with highly sensitive LCMS approaches to MALDI approaches. And I think we're in a, in a very strong position in the market to offer our customers the opportunity to do both. You know, so the title of your podcast being OMG Proteomics, I mean, I think they're living in a wonderful era right now where we can look at proteins within a single cell. We know we can do it with LCMS uh, proteomics. And I think very soon 
with Mike and what you do, you know, in your daily job is trying to get us with Maldi and we can connect the two. And I think that would be very useful to our users who keep telling us, you know, if we can do that, it would really benefit their work. Do you have any other OMG people that you haven't had the opportunity to meet yet that you think could continue to be impactful? Do you have a science crush on anyone that you've never had the opportunity to interact with in this field or otherwise? And I'm an old guy, so most of the most of the people who are who are established in the field have had the good fortune to know and listen to. Right, so people like John Yates, Matthias, Albert Heck. You know, it's been a very satisfying career, I would say. And now, if I could learn more from the oncologists, you know, the whether we can translate mass spectrometry and truly make it widely uh, adoptable, like a genomics instrument, I would say in my next or in this current phase in my career, that would be the goal: is to listen to how we could translate. You know the complexity of mass spectrometry and make it uh, make it an everyday tool. If we can achieve that, I think it would be wonderful. I would love to hear from the listeners as they get a taste of this podcast and who they think might be that next OMG person in the field of cancer oncology and biology, and who might partner with Brooker at some point. So hopefully, we'll get some feedback on that um, to give you some direction of where to start looking in case you need some hints. All right, so. Let's think a little bit more or talk a little bit more about your career in industry, if I can if I can ask you a couple more questions here. What would you want some of the new people at Brooker to hear as they're joining on at this exciting time? How would you motivate them and make sure that they feel empowered to achieve everything that's possible? Yeah, I would say listen and be close to your customer. Right. So I'm a believer in empathic design which is, you know, we are doing stuff in the back rooms that people are not aware of that capability. They know that and see where your customers struggle. You know, what are the uh, what are the difficult problems they're trying to solve? From something as simple as just in your mind counting the number of mouse clicks people are using to get to what where they need to be, feeding that information to your software team and or understanding, you know, the impact sample prep would have in uh, in the final data that the machines acquire. So be curious, you know, be curious, challenge the status quo, and don't accept dogma. You know, that would be my advice. Very good, I like it. Do you have any other, um, you know, comments on bringing the whole system together? You know, you talked about the back room, you have software, you have applications development. So much goes into making a workflow and a machine successful. So how do you see the interplay of that um, at Brooker? And, and how would you say, wow, you know, we've really mastered this and made it into an OMG moment? Right. So, you know, we sit on a lot of technologies, right, which, has, which have features. The question that we have to ask ourselves and all the groups that you mentioned is what is the benefit of the feature that it brings to the biology our users are trying to solve, right? So... If you go and you look at labeling experiments, do you have enough sensitivity? You know, is it is it meaningful to see expression of proteins within certain cells? And just don't just don't be in a silo. You know, take a look at the entire process from sample preparation to getting the data 
and then whether we can take that data and convert it to actionable knowledge. You know, otherwise, as a system, what's the point, right? So we keep enabling the difficult problems that people are trying to solve. I think that's the strength that we have in Brooker with the people we have internally, the way we work, and the community that we serve. I think the broader life science mass spectrometry view and the solutions view is a little bit newer to Brooker. How will you keep our momentum going here and make sure that we can translate into new and different markets instead of serving the, you know, the typical academic scientist only? Yeah, so you know, we're growing quite nicely in uh, pharma, but we're also in the research part of pharma. So it's basically uh, very similar to what the academics do. And the question, the real question becomes, how do you translate complex technology that's required to solve some of these very difficult problems and make them mainstream, right? Which means making the instruments more, more affordable, uh, more easier to use. And all this may sound like a cliche, but you know, we are sending, it's the same thing as not a moonshot anymore, but, but designing a rocket to Mars. And we want to make that like a family sedan. Yeah. So it's quite a, I would say, a, a chasm to, uh, to bridge. You know, it's, yeah, we all want to do it. But if it was easy, you know, cancer and what happens would have been solved already. Right. So it's a, con- we're continuously moving and upping the uh, level of performance. And the question is how to bring, you know, like an F1 formula car and get those components and make it a family sedan. I think, and that is something we think about. We try and try and grapple with that question. And it's not easy. It's not easy because getting proteins from a single cell, even five years ago was almost impossible. Today, we're doing two, 3,000 proteins from a single cell, which no one thought was possible. The question is how to make it push button. And I'm still looking for that answer, to be honest. So you, you lead nicely into my next question, which is about staying innovative and staying disruptive. So there's, a, there's an article that came out in Nature this week that's been causing quite a bit of chatter online, largely in the academic circles. So we don't have to you know, move into that side of things. The main premise was that there's a slowdown of disruptive science in terms of what's being published. And how do you feel about just disruptive science in general? And how does Brooker and the industry stay competitive in, in the differing landscape of how we measure success? Yeah, I think I'm fortunate that I report to my management, which rewards us for being disruptive. Okay, so I would say what's going on in uh, that article that you refer to is, you know, there's comfort in uh, being with the majority, right? So if you're not challenging the status quo and you're not doing disruptive work, which is not easy, it requires original thinking. It requires going against the system. These are not easy tasks. But if you're supported, and I'm in the, uh, I would say, enviable position where my bosses allow me to take risks, you know, that are calculated and that uh, end up 
solving these difficult problems. Because if you don't think outside the box, then you become mainstream, right? So how do you get what we do? You know, take a laser, focus it to, a, to one micron so you can hit a cell. That's not easy to do. And then we won't need sensitivity to uh, get the proteins within that cell or design instruments that allow you to cut through thousands of samples to do it. So there is risk. And the question is, how do you balance risk to reward? And if you've got the backing of good management where you can go after disruption, which is not easy, right? You only know disruption after you've done it. So there are many failures that no one talks about, but only the the successful examples of disruption, which are few and far between, which no one talks about either. So I think, yeah, it's uh, in you know today's economy and people are, you know, there's safety in numbers. So I don't blame them. It's you, you know that's why you got fewer Nobel prizes. You know, not everyone wins one, and it's not it's not easy what we do. I I think that's that's how I feel about it. nothing wrong in trying to substantiate what's already out there. And it's very difficult to be uh, to be disruptive. You're absolutely right. Um, what do you think about the way that Brooker brings in people? We have such a, a high number of PhDs that interact from the sales team all the way through your level of position in our CEO. You know, we don't shy away from people who have, have taken that harder course and put their 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 interest in science first before turning to business or industry. Do you have any thoughts or feelings on on that type of personality that is drawn into Brooker? Yeah, I think it reflects, you know, uh, our CEO, Frank Laukin, and, you know, my boss, Jürgen Schrega, who have always encouraged a quality over quantity, right? So we are in a business where we are talking to scientists. So we're not exactly a B2C type of business, right? So we're not on the consumer side. We're talking to scientists. So it's like a pilot trying to sell an airplane to another pilot. So how do you talk the same language? And why would we silo if we can get PhDs selling to other PhDs? Why not? So I would rather have a smaller number of very smart people who understand the subject at a depth where they can can talk to the customer and these are just labels companies puts on people, right? You're a sales rep, you're a marketing person, you're a business development person. And personally, I'm not a believer in labels, right? We are there to facilitate the science. We are the makers of the tool. Someone's got to go and showcase the strengths of the tool. So if we have labels, they're only internal. And I think we're pretty successful in being flexible encouraging, you know, entrepreneurship at any level within the company. I enjoy that a lot, right? So in my position, often people tell me things that I want to hear, but that's also dangerous. But the good fortune that we have is we have, I mean, scientists like you who are open to challenging, you know, the ideas that we have. So, and I think that's very healthy in an organization where we don't layer and people are not afraid to tell me what they think and how they could improve upon products. It could be anybody, a person we hire in the application lab. If he's got a great idea, why not? You know, these are just labels internally. And I'm not a big believer in labels because you just rent them. Today, I'm the president. Three years ago, I wasn't. 
10 years from now, I'm not going to be. Someone else is going to take that title. So why focus so much on these labels we put on each other? You know, let's have some fun, drive uh, science with the tools that we develop. And that's the fun part of being at Brooker. Rohan, can you tell me when you had your first encounter with mass spectrometry and what made it so appealing and interesting to you? In my PhD, we were working on thermospray. And when I saw that first peak keep on rising, I can never forget that, you know, to see the joy when uh, that ionization technique really worked for a compound. No one had seen the mass spec before. I couldn't believe my eyes. And I was very lucky to fall into the field, you know, to, to start working on instruments like that. And that was really, I will never forget that moment where we got the first spectra and we could confirm the molecular mass of that compound. It was called Fumonacin B1. And it was a mycotoxin that was driving horses crazy. And no one had discovered that molecule before. The NMR guys had some idea. And we had one of the first samples that was isolated out of South Africa. And it came to our laboratory. I was working on this prototype instrument. We said, let me inject and see what happens. And I still remember like it was yesterday. I think that was almost 30 years ago. It was amazing to see that. To close out, let's do what I think is hopefully an easy question for you. So if we were to extend this podcast into an episode of Undercover Boss, you know what that is, as long as you know what that is. Okay. So what position at Brooker would you want to go undercover in, in order to have new insight into how things are done? Yeah, I would pick a position of the packaging and shipping guy. Okay, because basically we're making systems that are as complex as a rocket that goes to Mars. So how do you put that in a wooden box and ship it all over the world? And it's always been a curiosity of mine of, you know, things that we got to hit a micron, you know, on a surface with a laser. How does this survive the shipping and packaging process, right? So people always are impressed with how they open up the iPhone. But our instruments are so much more complex, yet we ship them all over the world and they come up and they perform. So if I was in the undercover program, uh, that's where I'd love to uh, love to spend some time. So you've had a lot of luck working with people and hearing about their fantastic science, but have you ever been able to sit with a customer and see them opening the boxes that contain all of the instrument and components? It's a fairly large package with four different things at a minimum that are being opened up taken out, and then assembled in front of their eyes. Have you ever been able to see that type of OMG moment? I haven't seen that, but I've seen many times customers so excited to show me what they have discovered using our technology. And, I, you know, and these are famous, famous scientists, very well accomplished. You know, and the joy on their faces after all this time that they have spent yet they have this moment, you know, like the Eureka moment where they say, oh, take a look at what this thing has done for me. And those are some of the best moments I really enjoy, you know, because that substantiates all the hard work a lot of people do, right? I get, I'm in the 
I'm in a good position where I get to see the joy in the customer faces of all the work that our scientists and our apps dev people, our demo people, they all have put in. But when they show me stuff for the first time, you know, and I've been in situations where I'm amazed how far this has come in reality. You know, to see phosphorylation uh, in on a peptide, on a low level, underexpressed protein from a single cell to me was is amazing that this can happen. You know, looking at proteins with our labeling techniques now with Ambrogen that are so obvious in our, uh, you know, uh, tumor analysis is it's just stunning to me. And uh, after being so long in the industry, to see this again is, is just amazing uh, to me. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a very satisfying job, I must say. All right. Well, Rohan, thank you so much for joining us today on this first podcast. Um, I think you've given us a fantastic story of your OMG moments. And I look forward to continuing this and hearing from others as we move forward. No, thank you very much for the opportunity, Kate. It was an enjoyable conversation. I hope you enjoyed our first episode of the OMG Omics podcast. As a call to action, like I mentioned, I'd love to hear from all of you. And I thought I'd share my OMG science moment as well. When I was an undergraduate at the University of Northern Iowa, I got to do mass spectrometry for the first time. And in my instrumental analysis class, I learned about this fantastic equation, Ke equals one half mv squared. Blew my mind, still does. How can something so simple do such amazing science inside a mass spectrometer and inside an instrument? It carries with me to this day. I've always said that since I live in New Hampshire, I'd get a personalized license plate but I haven't been able to figure out a way to make KE one half MB squared into a license plate. So maybe you guys have some suggestions for me. Maybe you guys can share with me what your OMG moments were, because it's fantastic that we can carry these with us and that we can keep science in mind with the work that we do on a daily basis. Signing off until next time.